we have some very special guests. This actually encounter was supposed to happen uh, a couple months ago, and we were snowed out, and so we postponed it for today. And uh, the, these gentlemen were willing to accommodate us and show up today, uh, take time out of their busy schedules to present to you. What we're going to talk about today, uh, you guys, uh, some of you, when you look at these terms up here, um, I think we'd get a wide variety of definitions. Uh, some of you in here may not even know that uh, Southwest Christian High School, and, and this uh, I hope is not the case, is a Protestant institution. Uh, and as a Protestant institution, in particular, evangelical Protestant institution. Uh, but guess what? Uh, that's not what everybody around the world um, who follows Christ is. So I wanted to share with you some statistics to tell you what we're about here today because I want to give uh, these gentlemen the uh, maximum amount of time we can uh, give them to dialogue and also to field some questions from you guys today. So when it comes to world statistics, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, Catholic Church constitutes 50%, approximately, the most recent statistics on this, of Christians worldwide. Protestants are 37% in Orthodox, and that uh, accounts for the various expressions of uh, Protestantism, Catholicism, or Orthodoxy uh, is 12%. So uh, what I've done today is invited a representative from each of these three major branches and traditions uh, of the Christian faith to share with us a little bit about some of the differences and maybe some of the similar similarities today, but also express a little bit of some things that I thought might encourage you in your awareness and knowledge of uh, the breadth of Christianity, but also help you maybe in your faith process these things. So we have three gentlemen with us today. Um, not, the pictures are not in order of where they're sitting. Uh, and Father Morby, uh, representing Orthodoxy, gentleman in uh, the middle here today. Father Haverstock, who is an alum of Southwest, visiting us today, and he'll mention that. And Dr. Helseth, representing Protestantism, coming from the University of Northwestern. So, so uh, we're going to start with a question. I'm just going to ask these gentlemen to introduce themselves, say a little bit about them um, and uh, their journey, uh, how they're in the tradition they're in, their family, and what they do. So. Uh, we'll begin with uh, Paul. Great. Thank you, Mr. Goldie, and hello, uh, Southwest. This is my first time back in a building that belonged to the high school since I graduated in 2002. This morning, as I woke up, one of the first things my eyes fell upon was my diploma from Southwest back in the day. I'm sure they look different now, but uh, the verse is still the same, Philippians 2, 14 to 16, so that's kind of cool. Anyway. Nifty, so no, no applause necessary, no applause necessary, no, that's cool, but, uh, okay, I sleep, that's right, so uh, I grew up in Eden Prairie, so uh, anyone here from Eden Prairie, excellent, all right, very good, very good, and uh, so when my parents sent me here, I didn't really know many people at the high school, but uh, I ended up having a, a great and I would say life-changing experience when I was at Southwest, um, came from a Lutheran background, so I grew up Missouri Synod Lutheran. I don't know if anyone here is currently a Lutheran who goes to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, but in any case, you don't need to identify yourselves. And if they're aware of it. And if they're aware yeah. of it, yeah, it's like, I know I'm Lutheran, I don't know which flavor. Um, my parents were very devout and raised their three kids, myself included, to love Jesus. My dad told me growing up, 
you know, I don't care if you become rich or successful, but the most important thing is that you follow God and that you put Jesus first in your life. And so that's been a value that my family exemplified and taught, and I, it's still a value I'm trying to live by. So um, becoming Catholic when I was 22 years old in college, uh, I feel like was just a continuation of that journey. Um, a, as I see it, fuller way to follow and love Jesus Christ uh, with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So thanks for having me here today. Can you mention uh, your current occupation? Where you, where current you occupation. I am currently a Roman Catholic priest, and I am stationed in Shakopee, Minnesota. There are three churches in that area, which all are under my control. No, which are all <laughs> un- uh, I'm responsible for, along with the pastor. There's two of us there, and that's uh, called the Parish of Saints Joachim and Anne. We also have a grade school called Sachs Shakopee Area Catholic School. We've got about 700 kids there. I know it's like an unfortunate name, so... It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I always have to say, sacks. Anyway, yeah. okay, very good. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Father Uh Father Morby. Hello, I'm Andrew Morby, and um, I'm the dean of the Orthodox Cathedral in the area, which is in northeast Minneapolis and has been there since about 1888 or 9. And um, my parishioners call me Father Andrew, but other people go that way. Uh, I've been an pre- Orthodox priest for 37 years. I'm not American, I'm Canadian. I live m- more years in the United States than, than anywhere in Canada now, but uh, about half my Canadian life in Ottawa, the capital city of Canada, and the other half on Vancouver Island, the most beautiful part of the world. And um, Orthodox priests are married. I have uh, a wife and three children, and my oldest son went to law school with Father Paul, apparently. I learned that this morning, and um, what can I say else? Uh, um, well, that's it. That's who I am. That's right. So the Orthodox world, uh, you know, I, I would say that would have said that at some other point, but if you think of if you think this way, that uh, Christianity is actually an Eastern religion. You know, Western Christianity is a blip historically. It's on the margins of Christian history. Influential, affluent, important, but it's a, it comes from the Near East and those traditional lands of the Apostolic Church in the Eastern, Med- the Mediterranean world and uh, the Balkans and over into what's now Iraq and so on, those were all uh, uh, early Christian communities and the Orthodox churches have a strong sense of continuity from these places and uh, so that it exists as a communion of, of families, Greek, Russian, Romanian, Bulgarian, Coptic, South Indian, Ethiopian, uh, uh, Polish, uh, Serbian, uh, I get lost, you need a scorecard sometimes on that and as a communion of families and so I'm part of uh, an American Orthodox Church, which has been around uh, uh, from 1794, when, it, when the, the Russian Orthodox missionaries first came to Alaska. And so we're sort of the grandchild or grandchild of the Russian Orthodox Church. And, uh, but we've been here long enough that if you looked at our directory, you would see names like Carlson <laughs> and Smith, and, as well as sort of Russian or Ukrainian or Greek or Romanian names kind of assimilated into American society. Dr. Helsack. 
Um, I teach at theology at uh, University of Northwestern, uh, where I taught Mr. Goldie 20 years ago. Um, I'm also related in one way or another to Syrian Soren Johnson. Is Soren still a student or is he graduated, I think? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, <coughs> I grew up in the Lutheran Church as well, uh, as, as Paul did. Um, the branch of the church that I grew up in, the Lutheran Church that I grew up in, was it was the progressive branch or the liberal branch of Lutheranism. Uh, when I was in high school, my family started to migrate out of the Lutheran Church into a kind of generic form of uh, evangelicalism. Uh, when I got to college and then into graduate school, uh, I myself uh, started to study uh, Reformed theology, so a, a uh, form of Protestantism. Uh, I'm currently uh, a member of Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church, which is a Reformed church uh, in, uh, in the, uh, a Presbyterian church in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which is a more conservative wing of uh, American Presbyterianism. Um, I'm married, I have two children, um, and uh, I appreciate being here today. Thank you. Let's again welcome them. Thank them for being here. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask uh, these gentlemen a couple of questions that they'll uh, each answer individually, and then we'll proceed from there to uh, fielding some questions from uh, you as students. And staff and faculty can feel free to um, offer some as well. But the first question, uh, what's the distinct approach of your faith tradition uh, to Scripture? Uh, that is to say, with a kind of a view to distinguishing it from other traditions present. Uh, and maybe we'll s start with somebody different each time uh, here today. So, uh, uh, Father Morby, if you would mind maybe opening us up. Right. So, the Christian conversation that we're mostly familiar with has the two terms of scripture and tradition and the, the importance of scripture and the importance of tradition are somehow to be connected. And um, so there are those, of course, who say that scripture has priority over tradition, and there are those who say that scripture and tradition are two complementary sources of authority. And uh, the Orthodox Church generally says that tradition is authoritative. The scripture in itself has no authority. Everyone can read it themselves and come up with something different, but you need to belong to a school of interpretation, you have to learn, just as the Ethiopian eunuch learnt from the apostle. I mean, there has to be an apostolic teaching that governs how you understand scripture. We don't really, it's possible that there's some self-attesting movement when we read scripture by the Holy Spirit, but you couldn't, you would be deluded if you depended on that for your uh, understanding of Christian tradition. So it, it, what's important in orthodoxy is that we have the mind of the church, we uh, accept the apostolic teaching, which governs how we uh, ex uh, experience scripture, understand scripture. But even then, if scripture is testifying to something and not to itself, you know, we would say that um, God reveals himself in nature in a general way, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament is handiwork. 
and Scripture provides a more certain ground of knowledge of God for us, but actually the perfect revelation of God and the perfect uh, encounter with God is in Jesus Christ. And so um, there are these sort of three uh, concentric or three nesting uh, uh, sources of encounter, nature, scripture, and Christ. And it's a personal relationship with Christ uh, which comes to us through the life of the church, which is uh, actually the authority uh, that we would have. So, Thank you. Uh, Father Herstock. So I agree with many of the things that were said by uh, Father Morby. Um, scripture and tradition are both important. So when I was at Southwest, I learned how important scripture was growing up Christian scripture I learned was the inerrant word of God. In other words, I could trust that scripture did not contain errors when it came to the things that God wanted to reveal to us. I still believe that as a Catholic, the Catholic Church officially teaches that scripture is without error. But as Father Morby said, Catholics would agree that when we read scripture, we need a guide to help us. Some people would say, and I would have said this, uh, during my high school time, well, the Holy Spirit is that guide, and that is a sufficient guide to understand Scripture. As a Catholic, I now believe that when Jesus came to earth, he did not leave a book that he intended for every individual Christian to read and interpret on their own without help from other people. And as a Catholic, I believe that God actually gave us a church which helps us to understand what the Bible means. So you could imagine it this way. Uh, a stool with three legs uh, sort of represents the revelation of Jesus Christ. One leg of that revelation is scripture, the Bible, the good book. Another leg is tradition. In other words, the things that the apostles taught but were not necessarily written down in scripture. The third leg is the church's authority to teach. In other words, what we call as Catholics, I don't know if you use the same term, the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church to interpret the Bible uh, in the same way that the apostles have always understood it. There's one particular verse that I wanted to mention. Of course, I have 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 memorized. Does anybody here have th those verses memorized as well? Okay, so one teacher. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work which God has prepared for him to do. Or that's my, that's my Catholic paraphrase at the moment. And uh, growing up, I thought that verse basically meant, well, that's, that means scripture's enough. Uh, but I didn't know other cool verses. For example, there's, where's that one I wanted to share? Here we go. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. Sword drill. Do you guys still do sword drills? I don't know if anybody does that. Raise your hand if you don't know what a sword drill is. Okay, that's like, that's like half of the student body. That's okay. A sword drill. So, so the Bible, the Bible, <laughs> it's awesome. The Bible has been called sharper than a double-edged sword. And so, uh, because of that, we sometimes call the Bible a sword, and a sword drill is where you flip to a passage in Scripture and see who gets there first. Whoever gets there first wins the sword drill. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15, I'll just read that out. Uh, let's see what we got here. So, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, 
beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key verse. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So this is St. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, saying, hold fast to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Well, what are the letters, the stuff that St. Paul taught by letters? Well, that's what we got in the New Testament. We've got the epistles of St. Paul and the four gospels and a few other books as well. But he also mentions this passing on by word of mouth. And so Catholics and Orthodox would both say, well, at least I don't want to speak for you, but I believe we would both say, Verses like that indicate that the Bible itself teaches us that we actually need to be open to another source uh, for what we believe as Christians than simply scripture alone. There are also these things that the apostles taught and the way that we believe we have access to that or the Catholics believe we have access to that is by the authority of the church, which has existed right from the beginning and continues to teach faithfully what Jesus meant when he said stuff and all the stuff that he didn't say as well. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go off script here for just one second because I think there's some overlap in my second question uh, and just ask maybe uh, to ping back to you, Father Morby for a second if you um, were to clarify some of the distinctions because he's referred to you a number of times in the conversation to sort of say I think I think we're on this the same page here or not uh, would you be willing to maybe um, come back to say what would you say are the differences The, the differences heat, specifically in what? Uh, in the approach to scripture between the Orthodox and the Catholic tradition. Uh, well, you know, uh, our dear uh, Roman Catholic friends, we're Orthodox for about a thousand years, so we have this common uh, tradition of scriptural interpretation, scripture reading, so um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of similarity. I don't, uh, the, uh, the, the issues would be of, of a more secondary nature on what constitutes magisterial authority and scriptural interpretation, but probably not. I mean, one of the main things, so uh, it's actually interesting though, because when, uh, when uh, we're told in Timothy to, um, that scripture is uh, breathed by God and for our instruction, the author is referring, of course, to the Old Testament scriptures, not to the New Testament scriptures because scripture in the period of Christ and the apostles was Old Testament. Um, the letters are written long after Christ and uh, the New Testament letters and so on. Um, so that does, it, it kind of, the Old Testament poses, posed and perhaps still poses a big problem, a stumbling block for many faithful Christians and they read it and they think, find it kind of incomprehensible and uh, even when directed through Bible studies and things, they still find it rather difficult. They find passages of it particularly difficult. One that comes to my mind immediately because I'm always asked about this. In the period of Lent, we uh, used the psalm made popular by Bob Marley. Uh, I don't know if anyone listens to Bob Marley anymore, but uh, by the waters of Babylon, we hung up our, our lyres, our harps, and wept when we remembered Zion was a wicked man carried us away into captivity and required of us a song. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? At the very end of that beautiful song of alienation and uh, longing, it says, 
Blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes their brains out on the stone. And uh, I'm always asked, well, I, I, that sounds rather cruel and wicked and unnatural and certainly not very Christian to be dashing the brains of children. And the answer was already provided in the, in the second century that we read the Old Testament in a spiritual way. We read it to see Christ. We're not reading it as a handbook of cosmology or history or scientific, whatever that might mean. We're reading it to find Christ. And where the Old Testament scriptures are transparent to Christ, um, that's what they mean. That's what they actually mean. What's the meaning of Genesis? The meaning of the opening chapters of Genesis is about Christ and of God's will in Christ, his creative logos, his creative word. In, it's not a... It's not a it's not a documentary on creation. So we, we look for Christ. Uh, so I'm sure, and that, that's a common tradition for at least a thousand years in the church to read the Old Testament in light of Christ. Uh, and what other information it may have is only of relative importance. Because where it's not testifying to Christ, it's just, I don't know, data or something. Anyway, that's enough. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Helsack. Well, I appreciate the... Uh kind of the follow-up clarifying question you asked, because I think um, perhaps one of the primary disagreements between our three traditions would be not the importance of tradition, but the relative place of tradition and um, the amount of authority that is granted to tradition. Um, so as a Protestant, a Reformed Protestant, I subscribe to uh, the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. So scripture alone is the, the final authority in all matters of faith, learning, and living. Um, affirming sola scriptura is not the same thing as affirming solo scriptura. Solo scriptura is an emphasis on the Bible alone. Um, and it's sadly, I would argue, uh, an idea that um, is embraced by many uh, contemporary evangelicals, that the Christian life consists solely of me and my Bible. Uh, and actually, what I appreciate about what has been said is the emphasis, the implicit emphasis, that Christians are not first and foremost individuals. No, we are members of Christ's body. Um, we are in union with Christ. And Therefore, we are in union with Christ's people. Um, so, so a proper understanding of sola scriptura acknowledges that the Bible is not first and foremost my book as an individual, it is the church's book. And that tradition matters. So if I find myself reading the Bible and uh, feel myself compelled to draw the conclusion that there are not three persons in the Godhead, but four persons in the Godhead, then I should acknowledge immediately that I'm reading the text wrongly and that I, I'm, I, I have a problem. Um, so back to what I said, I, I think that the, the, the real debate is uh, about the relative amount of authority that is granted to the text 
and granted to tradition and precisely how do we understand tradition. Um, so what is the role of, what is the relationship of tradition to the text? And um, even though I haven't read something on this for a long time, just recalling graduate school days and things that have been said in Protestant circles since, um, Protestants would argue that the authority of scripture was not in a sense granted to it by the early church fathers. Rather, the early church fathers, when they were deciding on which letters were canonical or ought to be included in, in scripture, um, a, a classical Protestant would say that they were not determining which books are God's word, they were acknowledging which books are already God's word. So that's a little slightly different take that has implications then, as far as I can tell, for future discussions about the relationship between tradition and scripture. Thank you, Dr. Walter. Uh, I think the second question, to some extent, was uh, overlaps with that question you just answered concerning church and ecclesiology. So uh, if you could speak briefly before we go to Q&A on um, what's the distinct approach of your faith tradition to salvation? Uh, and maybe uh, we will uh, begin with you. Uh, I, th I think I started with you first time, and then so we'll go to uh, uh, Dr. Helsa. Okay. Yeah. So what, is, what, what does my tradition say about? Correct, about uh, the approach to salvation. Um, well, in a nutshell, um, salvation for Protestants entails embracing Christ as one's Lord. Um, it, it involves acknowledging that one is a sinner, that one has fallen short, of God's glory, that um, that Christ is the atoning sacrifice for one's sin, and that embracing Christ in faith means more than just assenting to what he accomplished for his people, salvation, um, but it involves embracing that with one's whole being. So not only knowing that the gospel of what Christ did on the cross for sinners, not only knowing that that is true and that it happened, but uh, committing oneself to it, loving it with one's whole heart, and as a consequence of that, um, following Christ. You know, Jesus himself says that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. So salvation is not just to embrace a particular idea. So I'm a Christian just because I agree with a certain number of propositions about what Christ did for sinners. No, salvation involves acknowledging the cosmic significance of who Christ is, not just 
for reality generally, but, but for me. And so what do I do as a Christian who has been saved? Uh, I keep his commandments. Um, faith without works is dead. A faith that doesn't work isn't faith. <laughs> um, it might be, you might embrace certain ideas that are true, but if you are not following Christ, doing what Christ command, commands, um, if you don't love him in this kind of full sense of the term, the sense which includes to you, you uh, Paul, okay. Father Hatchback. Thank you. So I would uh, basically agree with everything that has been said up to this point, and I think that's great. Uh, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and in his book, Mere Christianity, raise your hand if you've read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. They better have. <laughs> okay, very good, thank you. So that's one of the assigned uh, readings yeah. around here. Very good. One of my favorite books and I think it's in the introduction to mere Christianity that Lewis says, he's talking about how, yeah, there's a lot of different flavors of Christianity out there, and he uses the image of a house with many rooms, and he says, you know, you can't just live in the hallway of a house, you have to eventually go into one of the rooms and make yourself at home, and when you're trying to figure out which room to go into, the question isn't, do I like this style of worship, do I, f do I feel nice here? The questions are, are the doctrines that are taught true and do I see holiness in the members of this church um, and so those are the questions he asks and then he goes on to say no matter which room you go into the Christians who are living their faith most intentionally um, and most dedicatedly they'll find themselves closest together to each other um, I forget exactly the beautiful turn of phrase that he uses to say it but I love that concept and I agree with that that those of us who are really trying to follow Jesus Christ and willing to take up our cross and follow him, um, who recognize ourselves as sinners and, but are still trying to follow him, we find ourselves very close together, which is why I think it's cool that I can basically agree with everything that's been said and say, yeah, I think that's very true. Catholics would make a couple extra distinctions. So, point of life is to follow Jesus Christ. Agreed, um, we're saved by God's grace. Faith, faith without works is dead, agreed. Um, Catholics believe that a Christian who's trying to live their faith still has free will, and so it's still possible to make a deliberate decision to commit what you might call a big sin. Let's take the example of murdering someone. Um, and that by doing such an action, Catholics would call that a mortal sin, mortal uh, from the Latin word mors, by the way, is my Latin teacher here today, uh, Justine Carlson. Woot, woot. Okay, so Mrs. Mrs. Carlson was teaching Latin back in the day, and her husband, Donnie, was just up here as well. And so she taught me Latin, and because Dr. of her... Dr. Yeah, Dr. Oh, sorry, Dr. Carlson. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot that he teaches here now. He wasn't <laughs> teaching here before. Dr. Carlson, uh, going to confession. <laughs> see, I'll, I'll see myself in confession. All right, very good. And uh, I was, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Major breach in protocol, my apologies. <laughs> so uh, don't call him, whatever, anyway, we won't go there. So 
so, so his wife, Mrs. Carlson, was a teacher at the high school, and she taught Latin. And I had her for Latin for three years, and because of her uh, great class, I ended up majoring in Latin in college. That's what I went on to do. And so this is a tangent, but that's why I know that the root of the word mortal is from mors, which means death in Latin. So mortal sin is a sin which causes death to your relationship with God. So Catholics believe that we still have this ongoing free will, and if we commit big sins like that, then we might be destined no longer for heaven but for hell until we have a change of heart and return to God once again. So for a Catholic, from the Catholic worldview, it's possible for that to happen a number of times in a person's life. So some people might say, well, once you become a Christian, you're always saved and nothing can change that. And there's beautiful scripture verses that seem maybe to suggest that nothing, nothing can take you out of God's hand. Um, Catholics would say, of course you can jump out of his hand. Uh, and that's why we, the importance of recognizing that we still have free will. So that would just be like an asterisk I would add to the conversation about salvation and something that's distinctly Catholic. Um, on a closing note about that, Catholics also believe in the sacraments, which are one of my favorite parts of being Catholic. Uh, this physical stuff that God uses to um, share his grace with us, like communion, for example, but also the sacrament of confession. And just this last weekend at Mass, uh, we have kind of set scripture readings for each Sunday, and we heard this cool verse. Does anyone know what, after Jesus rose, he, he appeared to his disciples, and he appeared in a locked room. Somehow he got in there. Does anybody know what he did when he got in there the first time? Uh, anybody have a guess? There's a couple things he does. There's a couple right answers to that question. Okay, I'm just going to give you a pass and read it myself, and so no need to say, let's see. On the evening of that day, this is John 20, verse 19 and on. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I love that verse. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And as a Catholic priest reading that verse, well, actually, as before I was Catholic, when I read that verse for the first time and actually noticed what it said, I really didn't have any idea of what to do with it. I think it's a sort of hard verse to, to deal with if you don't have a sacramental understanding of, of the church. Um, I think Father Morby and I would agree that this is one of the verses which points to the sacrament of what we would call confession or reconciliation or penance, whatever you call it, where Catholics come to priests. I myself go to a priest also uh, when I sin to ask for God's forgiveness. Not that a person has the ability on their own authority to forgive sins, but that God has chosen to share the responsibility of forgiving sins through human beings. So this is something that we call sacraments. It's pretty awesome, but... That's the end of three minutes and probably five, so sorry for talking so long. <laughs> okay. Very good. So I am uh, going to have uh, you share, Father Morby, but while we do that, I'm going to give you guys uh, in the audience uh, this website, and we might go just a few minutes late to field uh, some questions from you. If you guys do have advice, take it out only for the purpose of submitting some questions and then put <laughs> the device away. And if you have questions for uh, either of these three gentlemen, go ahead and submit those, and uh, while... Father Morby gives his response. Yeah, so the question is about salvation, and 
I would say um, we're objectively needy, all of us. Uh, we come to understand our own neediness, which is our need for salvation. And the Apostle Paul uses a lovely uh, little phrase that we are saved in Christ. In, he uses it all the time, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, things in Christ. So uh, we believe that, that salvation takes place in Christ, being united to Christ, in communion with Christ, not merely as an act of the mind, but as the act of the entire whole person, heart, mind, soul, being united to participating in Christ in the most intimate way. Part of that has to do with the sacramental life of the church. Our baptism into Christ is a baptism into his death and resurrection. It's one of the, how we, the, the beginning of our participation in Christ and it's nurtured through the sacraments. But our idea of, of, of uh, our needing, you know, we're needy in, in, in many ways, uh, overlapping ways. We are ignorant and we need to be educated. We're in the dark and we need the light. We're lost and we need to be found. Um, I think the Western Christian tradition has focused primarily on the fact that we're guilty and we need righteousness, uh, but we are fallen and we need to be restored. We are sick, spiritually sick, broken, fragmented, alienated, and we need to be healed. Um, uh, we're lost and need to be led. I, I, there's lots of things that, that are there. We're uh, lonely and we need to be reconciled. We are made to love and we need to be loved to find authentic love. And so uh, for uh, the sort of patristic and I would say orthodox understanding of salvation is that many faceted. It's not merely that we're guilty of sin and we need to become righteous, but we're ignorant and need to be educated. We're in the dark and we need light. We're sick and we need healing. And all of, so there's many layers or many uh, considerations. Um, we're in bondage to death and sin, and we need to be liberated. And the one who does all of those things, Christ is the liberator, Christ is the teacher, Christ is the path, the way, the truth, the life, Christ is the light that shines, Christ is the righteous one, he's the perfect sacrifice. He's, he's all these titles, all these terms point to the multifaceted nature of our own neediness and the way in which in Christ those things begin to be uh, restored. And there are three tenses to this salvation. There's a past tense, because we were saved in Christ, and we are, in the present tense, being saved in Christ, as we uh, persevere in trying to follow him, run the course of the race, as St. Paul says, and we will be saved by him of course. So uh, there's three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. There's, um, right, so there's a, both a, a groundedness and a hope, and at the same time, something I, I've often found that is uh, maybe uh, not given quite so much emphasis in, in some Christian traditions that would be self-consciously Pauline with select verses from Romans and Galatians, for example, but uh, the idea that um, the Christian life requires effort, ascesis. You have to work at it. It comes as a gift, but you know, if you're, uh, if you, I don't know, 
if your parents give you a car on graduation, I hope they don't. But if their parents <laughs> gave you a car on graduation, if it's just parked there in the parking lot, yes, that's your car. But you know, unless you get out and drive it, what's the point? You know, so, uh, so our, the salvation in Christ is a great gift to us, but it needs to be activated by our intentionality, our active participation in it, our heart's desire to be part of that. Part of that. I'm not, this is the first time I've ever used one of these. And uh, <coughs> I see them all the time with security guards guarding important <laughs> people. So, excuse me. All right, that's okay, probably... Great, yeah, thank you. Enough. So we do have a lot of questions rolling in. We have limited time, um, but I think there's a couple themes that are emerging uh, from some of the questions. Lots, lots of great questions. Um, and, uh, of course, one we won't have a chance to probably get to is there's lots of interest in the beards. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> both with reference to why the beards and the grooming. Uh, but I think the uh, question or that- Or lack of grooming. The, que <laughs> the question that, uh, that comes up quite a bit here uh, is questions about uh, the difference in, uh, it seems like a running theme here, is that the, the difference in the issue of um, views of heaven and purgatory. Oh. So- um, That's a great one. I don't know, we'll just leave it open to you to whoever would like to share on that. May I do that for a moment? Um, because hell has been mentioned here. So, um, there is within the patristic tradition, by patristic I mean the age of the church fathers, you know, everything from John Chrysostom, Gregory the Great, Basil the Great, to Isaac the Syrian. Does it have an end? I, I think there might be, a, the Roman church might have an idea that it comes to an end with Aquinas or something like that. It can be more open-ended. I mean, this doesn't really matter. But uh, an age that uh, looks to the very diverse, reflective community of, of, of uh, prayerful and uh, sanctified uh, thought about Christian things. Within that, there are, there are many differences. So the church really is, I would say the church is really, it is a big tent. It's not a small sect. There, actually, in the Orthodox Church, there's more emphasis on practice than on belief. We're less creedal, of course we have a creed, but we're less creedal than some sort of, for example, confessional Protestantism um, and uh, that has all these propositions. Actually, what, what binds us to Christ and to one another is the things that we do together more than just the things that are in our head. But I'm not trying to oppose those. I'm not trying to oppose belief and practice. But in any event, so there is within this large reflective community of Christians an idea. One idea is that God's justice is not retributive justice, that is a justice which seeks out to punish us for some transgression, because in fact, what kind of father would God the Father be to punish people for, um, I mean, you wouldn't, as a father, do it yourself to your own children if they were a bit smart. Can you say smart-ass in this church? <laughs> in, this, in this school? I don't know. I just did. Oh, sorry. Uh, you know, if, if, you were, if you were a rude teenager, do you think that your father would condemn you to eternal punishment? I don't think so. So, uh, so the idea that, 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 that the punishment is exclusively retributive uh, for us is, is not always, uh, there's restorative justice, a justice that seeks reconciliation. And so there, there is within the, the I'm, I'm coming close to, the, the, Orthodox, the Orthodox Church is not a universalist church. 
We actually condemn formally universalism as a dogmatic teaching, although we tend to encourage it as a personal piety. We like this, Bishop Callistus Ware says that what kind of Christian does not long for the salvation of all people, you know, and, uh, and grieve. So St. Isaac the Syrian said, I would rather sit outside the gates of paradise for eternity weeping until the last sinner is received into the, into the kingdom. Um, right, so in, in that line, there is an idea which is based upon uh, that St. Basil the Great uses the analogy of an eye and the sunshine. The sun is shining. A healthy eye rejoices in the light. A sick eye winces and turns away from it. He says God's love is like this. It's not that God is ever absent. In the life to come, God is present to sinners and righteous alike, but how they experience his presence determines you know, where they are, so to speak, or their condition. Those who love God experience the presence of God in the life to come with great joy. And those who have said no to God throughout their life experience his continuing presence as less than comfortable. Um, in, in, in this idea, it's not God's arbitrary or divine. It doesn't, I mean, there's a range of things here. It's not God's will that condemns. We're self-condemned. We're self-condemned. God is just God all the time, 100%, all the way down to the bottom. Honey, all the way down, said Pooh, right to the bottom of the pot. You know, he's always loving, but his love can be experienced as a purgatorial fire as well as a warming light. So I've just mentioned that as an intellectual exercise for us. So um, I, th I do think uh, there are a number of other questions, but I think uh, in the interest of time, I'm able to give if, if either um, of the Paul's here, Dr. Helseth or Father Haverstock have a response to mm -hmm. that. We'll give some time for that, and that might be all we've got time for here today. Well, um, so the general question about b differences between us, about heaven and hell and mm -hmm. all of that. Well, I, I, th I think Protestants would, would focus on a number of texts, including uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Um, which uh, addresses um, the, uh, the work of Christ and relates the work of Christ to death and um, emphasizes the, uh, the once for all sacrifice of Christ um, in the heavenly, at the heavenly altar, in the heavenly temple. Um, um, emphasizing that uh, in, a, in, a, in a series of warnings throughout the book that um, how we as individuals deal with um, the gospel when it is preached to us, um, the choice that we make um, will have uh, eternal consequences. Um, and for those who follow Christ, for those who are in Christ, um, the consequences involve uh, ultimately um, life in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, a, an embodied existence, uh, not just an existence in the clouds playing a kind of imaginary harp, but life with 
God and God's people uh, in perpetuity. And uh, incidentally, that's a remarkably uh, comforting thought for those of you who have relatives uh, who have died in the Lord, that uh, our hope is not a disembodied existence, but an embodied existence um, in, a, in a sinless new heavens and new earth. Thank you, Professor. So um, at the risk of um, feeling like I just gave uh, the Protestant the last word, uh, we are strictly out of time and we do need to dismiss these guys. Uh, so let's give a round of applause to thank these guys for being here. And uh, obviously we don't have time to get to a lot of your questions uh, and a lot of them pertaining to things like, like losing salvation, uh, a lot of interest about uh, priesthood and those types of things and some moral issues. But uh, I'm hopeful that for you guys today, this has begun a dialogue um, and prompted some thinking in you and uh, your own faith. So thank you guys so much. You are thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage www.swchs.org click on student life and encounter again thank you for joining us and until next time keep your eyes fixed not on speakers teachers or institutions but on christ the author and the perfecter of our faith